welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Ken Elisa, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and Lord Lieutenant of Greater London. After a career in tech with IBM and then Wang Labs, Ken is now founder and chairman of Restoration Partners, a boutique technology merchant bank. He has chaired and been on many boards, including Thomson Reuters, the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, and the charities Shawtrust and Thames Reach. He's been awarded an OBE and a Knight Bachelor for services to business and philanthropy. In this podcast, he talks about the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial life and the thrill of helping others. So hello, Ken, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. Every time I spot your name, you seem to have another honour or major role to add to a glittering stack of them. Did you ever imagine you would have a career like this? As you know, I don't do long answers. I do extremely long answers, but the the question is no. (laughs) My life has been what I can only describe as an adventure. It certainly has been adventure. And you grew up in a two up, two down in Nottingham with a mother who perhaps should have been running a multinational, but but wasn't. (laughs) What what were her hopes and dreams for you when you were a child? Well, of course, in many ways, I can't possibly answer that question because my mother didn't talk to me about her hopes and dreams for me. She merely made sure I got on and did my very best at school and the other things that that I did. But when my mother died... Um, we had the funeral, and amazingly, lots of not just friends but clients of my business came to my mother's funeral. It was on a, it was obviously a very moving occasion. But a couple of people, for example, who were clients of mine, flew in from America just to attend my mother's funeral. Wow! So it was remarkable, very moving, very complicated for anyone who's lost a parent. And the music we played at, at the funeral started out with uh, a, a piece, an extract from Madame Butterfly. And, in, and ended up with uh, Sailing By, the music they play on the radio for at the end of the day. My mother's an inveterate radio listener. But anyway, I played the music at the beginning had to do with Madame Butterfly because my mother used to like that particular piece of music. And I said at the funeral, I have no idea why in particular it mattered to her. And one of my guests, not the ones from America, very generously then the next year on the anniversary of my mother's funeral, gave Julia, my wife, and me two tickets to go and see a Miss Saigon, which those of you who are listening and educated will know, of course, is Madame Butterfly reconfigured for the Vietnamese War. And as I was watching it, wondering why on earth he had done this, and of course I'd also forgotten it was a year after my mother's funeral because so much had happened, there was a moment when the, when the mother, the Japanese, the abandoned mother in the, in the, uh, in the play, or in the musical rather, essentially involved gives donates transfers every one of her dreams and aspirations into her small boy the illegitimate son before taking her own life and I, and I realized why my friend had bought us the tickets so that was a really long answer I did warn you to the question but I I think I I was my mother's answer to all of her disappointments how extraordinary that is amazing I remember you you talking about her going to Buckingham Palace and I mean, she sounded such a formidable woman. I, I, I was sort of wondering, actually, because you are always so almost relentlessly cheery, or at least you are when I <laughs> when I talk to you. Yeah, and, criticism. But, sorry? You make that sound like a criticism. No, no, it's not a criticism at all. It's a great virtue in life. Um, and your, But your mother, from everything you've said about her, was, you know, had extremely high standards. And I think you said in one interview that, um, perhaps if you know if she you know perhaps noticed uh, the bad things less she would live longer but she did live till nearly 99 so that's pretty good going <laughs> was she as cheery as you no oh no no my mother's grumpy Grum- that's grumpy. what I assumed yes <laughs> so where did your cheery where does your cheeriness come from life's been kind to me I mean, it would be such a waste of time if I got grumpy about things I mean I do obviously get grumpy about some things but in but in the main it's it, life is good as someone famously said yes I mean and you when I interviewed you for my book some years ago you said it, pretty much that you said you'd had a charmed life but um many people thinking that someone growing up um in not abject poverty but certainly not wealth in um as 
the child of a, a single mother in a time when that was not the norm, as a mixed heritage child, mixed race, so that um, you were the only black people most people around you saw. And you even said in one, in one interview that you were the only black person you saw, yep. uh, which must have been quite extraordinary. And uh, I remember you said when I interviewed you that um, people asked you things like how you went to the loo and made jungle noises when you were a child. So although you admirably always say everything's been wonderful, it clearly wasn't always completely wonderful. So tell me a bit about what that was like when you experienced that kind of racism as a child. Well, I, you know, I, racism is not the right word. Actually, I, I have a, I had to correct a couple of things. I you mm. used the plural then. I was the only coloured person at the time in our area. My mother was white. Um, so I was a, a particularly interesting child to most people. But I was, I think, a phenomenon as opposed to anything else. It was this strange brown boy with this white woman. And it didn't, it didn't conform to the taxonomy that most people had, which is that people weren't like that. And there, there were people of colour in living in Nottingham, but not where we were uh, in our district. Actually, there was one other boy, it, not that probably a mile away. So, so it wasn't as if I was entirely unique, but you had to go the other mile to see the other. Anyway, you get the general point. Mm. So there, there weren't very many of us. And I think I, I, I frequently mentioned this point, but I can remember when the first non-white bus conductor was hired by Nottingham City Transport. And it was front page news in the newspaper. And, and the basic message was that there to be no limits to these people and what they can achieve. So I, I, think, I think it's fairer to cast one's mind back to what it must have been like being an adult in 1951 when I was born, 1952-53. It was a few years after the Second World War. We'd survived as a nation the most terrible conflict, having thought that that was over for all time. And enemies were everywhere and odd, odd things were everywhere. And it, it, didn't, it didn't give us a bigger world view. So, so I think one has to use the lens of the time or try and imagine the lens of the time to start to, to even understand, never mind judge people and what people did. But, but all that being said, you know, I didn't have a miserable childhood. I had a very happy childhood. Mm. And, you know, and I, though I was a phenomenon uh, in the sense of statistics, people still like me welcomed me into things, gave me things, helped me, assisted me. The kindness of strangers is one of the big motivating driving forces I've experienced in my life. So I, I don't know to feel sorry for my upbringing. There's nothing about my upbringing to feel sorry about. I was extremely fortunate. Um, you went to a primary school which had a fantastic teacher, Mr Spencer, I think he uh, was. Yes. Tell me what he did. So, well, he was... Again, we've got to remember we're talking about the 1950s, which is, again, quite hard. I mean, it's hard for me because it's a long time ago and I'm old. It's quite hard now for people to imagine what life was like in the UK in the 1950s. Uh, not only had we survived the war, which is quite important in this, but, of course, the people doing things, leading, for example, school teachers and so on, had fought in the war. And, you know, it's worth saying we're very critical of our politicians in the 21st century, and probably rightly so. I suspect people were very critical of their politicians in the 1950s, but the 1950s politicians had survived the war. So they had experiences which you don't get if you go to a great public school and a great university and then go into a research department. So, so we, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that things are different. However, Mr. Spencer, back to my junior school, was one of those people, and he was a socialist, but not in the sort of the campaigning sort. He just believed in essentially inequality and he had all these poor children because we weren't the only poor family in the area at the secondary school and he decided he would as I look back on it now and, I, and this wasn't how he described it but he would inject essentially social capital and confidence into us as small children so each day we would come into assembly in this cold hall and sit down on the cold floor and he would play a classical music record and then explain it to us. And I remember, so, so well, for example, when Kathleen Ferrier comes on the radio, it takes me straight back to being a seven or eight-year-old boy, for example. But uh, Mozart and Beethoven and so on. So we were getting an education. But he wanted us, as children who were almost all destined to go into factory jobs, he wanted us to realise it was our world and we could do, actually, we could fulfil our potential. And, and the story that you're asking me to tell, which is, 
true, but so seminal, is one day we're sitting on the floor, and I would imagine I was eight or nine by then, and he spoke it to our class, and he gave he gave a rant, really, the only way to describe it, a rant about the society in our country at the time, and the fact that society was run by elites, and elites kept everything for themselves. And we needed to be careful not to be intimidated by elite, but we should view things as being shared. And we're sitting there, you know, what is, what is he going on about? We just had some classical music playing. Remember, there was a map on the wall showing the construction of the M1. And each week, it was some lucky child's job to move a piece of red wool further up England to show that as the M1 approached Nottingham, which began to terrify us as it got closer and closer. We had no idea what the motorway was, M1, the first ever in the country. Anyway, he said one of the things that the elite do is they have their own style and their own language. So he'd already told us about German language, so we knew that other people had other languages. It didn't seem very interesting. He said, and two of the words that they use in their language are champagne and caviar. Again, meant nothing to us. And he said famously, legendary now, he said, you're too young to try champagne, but you're not too young to try caviar. And out of one of his voluminous tweed jacket pockets, he took a little pot of caviar, and out of the other pockets, he took a packet of biscuits, and he put a tiny dob of caviar on a biscuit for each child in my class, told us all to sit back down again. So it was sort of a, a socialist holy communion, sit back down again on the, on the ground. And then he said, when I say, taste it, taste the biscuit. So we all put it in our mouths, all went, at the same time. <laughs> and he said famously, well, there you are, you'll never be intimidated when people talk about caviar. And then he went on to some other topic. So, so if, if that's the one I can remember of the things that he did. I, so one imagines now, for the years that I was at that school, he must have been doing things like that yeah. all the time, essentially giving us or giving us the opportunity to have the confidence to, to take on the world and, and get on with things. Yes, absolutely. That's such a wonderful story. And then you went to the very prestigious local grammar school and were voted by students and teachers as head boy, but that you had a teacher who was not quite as sympathetic, the head teacher there, who um, vetoed you being um, head boy until somehow you managed to become head boy anyway. And you gave a barnstorming speech. <laughs> Tell us about the barnstorming speech. I, gotta, I, gotta, I, like, I like all the rest of that story. Um, well, there are a couple of things about that. Yes, he didn't, it wasn't that he vetoed it. He decided there were three voting cameras and not only two, chambers and not only two, and his and his trump the other two, so it was slightly, it was slightly constitutionally more complicated. And I hadn't known until the Latin master asked what it felt like to know I'd been vetoed by the headmaster. So it was quite complicated. It was one of the early setbacks in my life. There have been many more and rather more material ones since then. Uh, it is worth saying, in his defence, he and I and my mother and he and I never got on. So I can see why he probably thought I wasn't a good idea. Uh, to be in such a prestigious position as head boy. I look back on it now, you know, these things seemed so important at the time. And I did go on to run the school underground magazine, which was focused entirely on tearing down the system. So, you know, he, he probably spotted something in my DNA that, that, that got him to the position. But then unfortunately for him, I did rather well in my A-levels, um, which meant that I had to stay on for a third year sixth form to do the entrance exams for Oxbridge. And, but actually fortunately for him, that meant I might go to Ox, Oxbridge and therefore I became kudos. So he suddenly became my best mate. And I think I discovered adult hypocrisy for the first time <laughs> uh, in, in my life. Uh, but anyway, it also meant that I became head boy for that term because obviously he couldn't possibly explain to everybody that I'd done well in my A-levels and been voted as head boy, but he was going to veto it again. And at the school speech day, I gave my first ever public speech to a strange audience. I'd obviously done it at school. So he, very keen, that, uh, that I behave at the school speech day because he knew I'd run the under underground magazine. So he tried to bribe me by saying that the school secretary would, of course, type my speech for me, which was obviously the greatest possible privilege. He obviously hadn't paid any attention to the fact that my mother was, in fact, a bookkeeper typist and we had typewriters and et cetera. Anyway, never mind. So he, he then wrote a speech for me. So the speech that, and it was a very bland speech, thanking the guests and so on. So anyway, I got this speech, and on the moment, I stepped up to the microphone to give the speech, and a devil, which lives inside me and popped <laughs> under my shoulder from time to time, popped up and said, go on. And so I gave a different speech, and the different speech I gave, well, I, I, I remember something along the lines of, I said it would normally be the practice for the head boy to ask the governors for a half-day holiday, uh, but as the caretakers had been on strike for two weeks, <laughs> there was no need to have any more holidays. We need to get on with our studies. And I made some point about the 
chairman of the education committee was the honoured guest who'd given a warm speech about our school, this ancient grammar school. And I said it was very interesting he'd chosen to say that because he was, of course, chairman of the education committee, which was turning our school into a comprehensive school. And I said something rude about the tech college, uh, which is now Nottingham Trent University, which very generously gave me an honorary degree a couple of years ago. (laughs) These things are circular. Uh, And I remember saying, uh, a lot of times (laughs) throughout this whole thing. I remember being really nervous. And then when I finished, I I got the drug that public speakers get because the noise that came from the audience was enormous, mainly from the boys behind me uh, who knew that someone would have to die for what I'd just done. (laughs) It wasn't them. but quite a lot of cheers from, I have to say, from the uh, the staff and parents, and so it meant I didn't die that particular day. But it was one of, it was one of those moments. But I, I say if if it was if it would there were two lessons from that. I think one is be yourself and seize the opportunity. But the other one is, which is slightly more venal, is I did get such a buzz out of that audience reaction <laughs> that you know I, I've sort of craved that buzz ever since. Well, you are one of the best public speakers I've ever heard. And it was after I heard you speak that I wanted to interview you for my book. And then ironically, you interviewed me for a board position the next day, which was pure coincidence. So, uh, you got. Yes, which I got, which is I, also, I think, coincidence. But it was... I mean, one of the wonderful things you bring to your speaking and indeed your your life is this fantastic uh, self-deprecating sense of humour. What? How did you develop that? Have you just always had it? Well, I think if you led my kind of life, self-deprecation is the only option. <laughs> yeah, the other one, otherwise other people would step ahead and deprecate me for me. I don't, I don't want that. I'd be deeply hurt then. Um, I think, no, really. But, you know, life has been wonderful. I, so um, you don't need to brag about it when life's been wonderful. And, I, and I've been so lucky. I mean, really, really lucky. Uh, there's a, there's a, a wonderful gentleman who's still alive. Frank Ellis lives in Nottingham. But, but Frank Ellis was this lovely chap who whom I met, and he, he liked me, and he saw something in me, and he paid for me to become a member of the Mechanics Institute, which was a private members' club in Nottingham. Which meant that when I finished school in the sixth form, which then he did it, I could then get off the bus back in town centre and go and read the newspapers of the day. There was a library there. Get a cup of tea before going home. Which, and it was nicer in the, it was nicer in the mechanics institute than it was in our house, for example, he taught me to drive uh, I, most remarkable I look back on that when, when we took him out to lunch and I, and I meant or I reminded him of all those things and I, and I said, you know Frank, you know you were really helpful to me so i didn't, I didn't remember being particularly helpful. I said, well, for example, you taught me to drive he said, did i so so he was just a nice person helping somebody else out. Yeah. My life is embroidered by all so many incidents of people just getting out of their way to be kind to me. And they always get a thrill out of it. I hope I've repaid them. I go out of my way to be kind to other people. Mm. I certainly get a thrill out of it. And they don't always repay me. And I don't mind. Mm-hmm. And you you went to Cambridge and had a wonderful time there. Um, you talked about a, a tutor who told you to drink deep of all that Cambridge had to offer. How do you think... What did you do and how do you think that affected your future choices? Right. So Dr. Hardy, another another man who made a fundamental difference to my life, was that tutor. Um, and he was he did what tutors are supposed to do, which is to look for the, the, the skills, the talents and capabilities in the person and, and then help them to essentially discover themselves, which sounds sort of terribly West Coast and so on, but actually really rather important. But but I would now so that's what he did. I now look look back on it and, and I describe it thus, which is what he did, he essentially instructed me to take a heavy dose of, so, dose of social capital, which I hadn't had in my state-educated, relatively impoverished upbringing. So what did I do? I learned to ride horses. I learned to play croquet. I played tennis really badly. I rode boats a few times, found it impossible to coordinate, became a cox. That was much more my style. Uh, of being in charge of something, crashed, crashed the boat famously in a bumps race. Um, I was a politician at college, uh, and I studied, of course, of course, of course, I studied and got a degree, of course, although that was a little bit of a <laughs> nip and a tuck at the end, I think. But, but, I, but I came away with a, a vast education in so many things, which is the whole point of university. And, and essentially, that's what he said to me in that first interview. Mm. And you went to... IBM and got fantastic training in on the both the tech front and the sales front. You've often talked about the importance of 
sales and the, the approach that IBM brought to it. Can you explain what their approach was and how that has affected your approach to work ever since? I didn't just go to IBM. What happened was at school in the sixth form, we had a Friday afternoon option. And the option was we could either A, go cross-country running, or B, go to the local university and learn computer coding. So A, it's cold, wet, outdoor occupation, tiring, sweaty, communal showers, or warm, coffee drinking, doing whatever computer programming was. So I... So B was my option, and I went and, and astonishingly, not everybody took option B. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea why, or, or whatever happened to them. Uh, but anyway, never mind. Maybe they enjoy the communal showers. Perhaps, perhaps I should be more charitable. Anyway, I so I learned computer coding, and then when it was time after that third year sixth form to uh, find a job for the summer, I before going off to university, I got a job at IBM only because another chap at my school had got a job at IBM. I had no idea what to do, and it was better than the job I thought I was going to get, which was to be a bus conductor. I mentioned that earlier. It was a very important thing in Nottingham. People like me becoming bus conductors, demonstrating there was no limit to our capabilities. So I, I uh, and of course, your listeners won't have any idea what a bus conductor is, but never mind, we can talk about that. <laughs> so, so by the time I, I got to university, I had managed, actually, no, I had got a, a deep affiliation for IBM, which was the most exciting environment. It, I mean, given that my other jobs involved painting laboratories, washing cars, et cetera, et cetera, working in a warm, dry office with lots of grown-up people doing what was at the cutting edge at that time of life and truth and everything was just amazing. And, and I displayed a, uh, an ability to write computer programs based on my non-cross-country running experiences. And so I got to write programs, demonstration programs, for salespeople to use when trying to sell systems to new people, to new customers. So it was a, it was a drug. It was a most exciting environment. And again, I had a wonderful boss, uh, another man called Ray Parrott. And Ray Parrott said to me one day, Ken, you should apply for a scholarship by your university from IBM. And I said, that's a really silly idea. You know, I've already, I'm already locked into IBM. I've already done my, etc. And he said, no, no, it's not me. We both had been drinking at a party. And he got quite aggressive with me. And he said, if I send you the forms, will you at least do me the honor of filling them in? And I remember saying drunkenly, well, yeah, if you do, yeah, of course I will. Yeah, of course I'll fill them in. So he did and I did and I got a scholarship. So no, no nobility there at all other from Ray Parrott. So by the time I'd finished university, I'd had, Two years of my education being paid for by IBM. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. With lots of other perks, including spending one summer working in New York. So, so I, I mean, it's if only I could have had a plan, just think how much better my life could have gone. <laughs> it came to the end of being an undergraduate, uh, which is technically known as I graduated, and I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do next. And I had had a scholarship from IBM. And so I applied to IBM and they very kindly snapped me up. Um, so, so I arrived at IBM, I have to say, I mean, obviously the, for the right reasons and in the right way, but it wasn't because I looked at all the 27 options available to me and decided on IBM. I, actually, I'd suddenly realized I had to find a job quickly because I was graduating and had nowhere to live, and IBM was the obvious one to go to. It turned out to be as exciting as a proper job as it had been as a, as a gap year and, and, and so on person. And your question was, what did they teach me? Well, they taught me business. Really, I mean, people go on MBAs now. MBAs obviously existed then, but very rarely. But they they taught me and everybody else how businesses work. So one day we'd be learning the balance sheet and how to understand, how to interpret a balance sheet. Then another day we'd be looking at how to explain a complicated concept. Another day we'd be learning computer programming. So it was a, an all round education. It took them three years. I mean, we obviously worked through that time as well. But there was on the job training some. But they taught me so many so many skills. You know, presentation skills, writing. I mean, it, I mean just it, it was a, it was at that time a fantastic company. I mean, I, I, mean, I again, I it's, think back to Mr. Spencer. You know, I land on my feet at the right place at the right time, just as that industry was taking off. And it's a little bit like being on a rocket. You know, you just sat down on a seat and suddenly, woof, you're in outer space, and everybody else is still in the in the departure lounge. It was just, it was, it was remarkable, <clears throat> and and it taught me how to structure an argument how to persuade somebody to do something that was in their best interest, how to be, remain friends with the people you'd sold things to so that you actually, they, they, the trust that they had given to you when they bought from you was then 
repaid, as it were, through the relationship, etc. And I, and I, I, if you cut me open now, although I've done many other things, you would find Big Blue IBM all the way through my mm -hmm. middle. And then you were headhunted by Wang, were you? Well, talking about the IBM, it went off the boil. IBM, it's very interesting for those listeners who have any interest in industrial history. IBM was a super challenging business. I mean, we were we were a little bit like Microsoft, in fact, very much like Microsoft Day or Meta or the other big companies. We were just so powerful. And the Department of Justice in America threatened IBM with an antitrust suit. And antitrust suit is essentially too much monopoly power in a company. And we had absolutely had a lot of monopoly power. We were very good. And that changed the dynamic in the company from the customer being the most important thing to not losing a DOJ case being the most important thing. And the power shifted from the men and women who cared about customers to the men and women who cared about process and defense. So the sales and marketing people who had run the company took the back seat to the legal people and the accountancy people. And there's nothing wrong with being a lawyer or an accountant. Bracket, discuss, close brackets. No, there's nothing wrong with those things. It's just that it wasn't what IBM had been. IBM had been about changing the world. I remember one of my colleagues, a really angry customer. I was at that time a technician, really angry customer with this with my colleague. And he was trying to the customer was trying to make a really good point about how badly he'd been treated by us. And we're trying to smooth it over and sort it out. And he said, So remind me again, sarcastically, what does IBM stand for? And my colleague said, I bring magic. And the whole tone changed and the customer burst out laughing. We fixed the problem. It was just we nothing could stop it. And then it did this threat of a DOJ case. They, in fact, never opened a DOJ case. And suddenly, as a salesman, or whatever I was by the product manager, we found ourselves filling out timesheets, and it just it all went badly wrong. And so, so I lost interest. And so I went to Wang, where I headhunted I mean, a recruitment person, called me up and said, would you like a job with this company? So I, I wouldn't want to overstate the headhunting <laughs> of that. I said, yes. Sorry, yes, obviously, to finish that point. And I went to, went to work for a... a an equally mad company. This was an entrepreneurial business. IBM, by the time I was there, wasn't entrepreneurial. And I would draw the distinction between an aggressive large company, think the army, versus an entrepreneurial company, which is what Wang was. Wang was started by a man called Dr. Wang. He was very much in charge, or he'd been doing it for 25 years by then. So he was, he was a Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs of the time. And he was a genius. He invented all kinds of clever things. Uh, of which word processing was one. It's hard to believe now that when I started there, people used typewriters. And if you've got an electric typewriter, that was actually really, really exciting. And if you've got an electric typewriter with a memory, so instead of using Tipex, you could just go back and change something. It was, the, it was the bee's knees. And we were screens and keyboards and things we now take for granted. So, and, and everybody wanted one. So it was, it was such an exciting time again doing, doing that. Uh, and I and, and I had a wonderful time there. And if you if you cut me in half, you'll find that under the IBM bit it says Wang. So those are the two that <laughs> are buried deep inside me. And then it ended with a bang um, when you attempted a management buyout, which didn't end well. How? I mean, so you were essentially fired. How worried no, were no, you? No, 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 no. I have to correct you there. I was fired. You were, okay. <laughs> I thought it was sort of not quite as direct as that, but okay, so you were fired. Yeah, I was fired. Okay, so, so what did that feel like, Ken, and how, you had a family to support. How worried were you? Uh, it was awful. So, so the story is, I worked for a man whom I couldn't stand, and he couldn't stand me. So this, this obviously wasn't going to last. And, 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 and I, was, I was responsible for all the business in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, and um, based out of Brussels. And it didn't seem to matter what I did, he just dumped on me. It was awful. It was just horrible. And because I was in Belgium and not in America, the politics of the company all happened in my absence. I'd been in America for some years before that, and I was there in part of the politics and could defend myself. It just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I realized, actually, I, I didn't like, I, I couldn't stand him, as I say. It was mutual. So I had to leave, and I, with my CFO, we cooked up this plan 
to leave not with a bang, sorry, not with a whimper, but with a bang. And we would do that by making the bid to buy our business. And my my sales pitch was quite simple. All you ever do is criticize my business. You say, you're not sure why Wang has this business anywhere in the first place. We don't make any money, et cetera. And I say, well, this is why we have the business. We've got lots of customers. We do actually make money. We generate cash. It's the way you look at it. So we're always having these arguments. So I came up with this brilliant idea, which was that we would buy it. And then he would be relieved of the thing he thought was a waste of time, allegedly. And we would get on to run it because we thought it wasn't a waste of time. So... So, so I found I went to the city. I found someone who was prepared to back us. We with that with that confidence that we'd be able to get the capital. I submitted a proposal, a letter. I don't want to overstate the depth of it, but a, a letter to this man saying you don't like us. You think we're a waste of time. I've got some great news for you. Well, I just take it all away, and you can get on with running your American business. And he fired me. And it, uh, if you do a, try and do a management buyout, there are only two outcomes. You either are successful or you are fired, you, et cetera. It's just all happened a bit faster than I'd expected and not the way I was anticipating. Oh, I should, I should add, Wang then went bust. <laughs> so I, I saw a director and I said to him, why, uh, why did you not pursue that offer? And he said, what offer? And I suddenly realized that it had never been put to the board. This wow. justice on, and a big lesson learned then, which is you never give up. And that, that certainly, I mean, my mother would have argued that as well. So, you know, I, I failed. I, it was such a big thing to do and it didn't work. And instead of me trying to pursue it, uh, I gave up. I would never make that mistake again. So mm. I'm now known for my relentless pursuit of an, of an aim because it was such a big lesson. That, that and I, you know, I wish I'd thought about it before. Anyway, so it was it was a horrible time, and your question was not that, but how did you cope? I had family, in, my family and I lived in Belgium. We we're English. We had to get back to the UK. Uh, I got a pathetic settlement in the you know redundancy payment in the being fired bit. So it was it was just so we moved back to the UK. Fortunately, my wife had persuaded me not to sell our house in the UK and to buy a huge house in America. We bought a medium-sized house in America, and we still had our house in England. So we had something to live. We had a very good local school. So that was all okay, but I didn't have a job. Um, and that was all quite traumatic. And I had, a, say, a small settlement. And then I got an offer for, I was headhunted this time, uh, an offer to do exactly the same job I had been doing, running Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, but for a software company, which by then was the rage, as opposed to hardware companies. And it was such a relief. My self-esteem, which had taken an enormous blow from being fired, you know, suddenly you have to worry about all these people that know you and like you and invite you to things and so on. Is it because you're Ken or is it because you're a senior vice president? And the answer is for lots of people, it's because I was a senior vice president. Mm. So, so, and, and it's really quite worrying. In fact, there's a story worth telling just because it will help listeners, I think, for these awful moments. A headhunter came to see me, a chap I had known for a long time. and he came to see me and he said he was late, 20 minutes late for the meeting. I was, I was doing a gardening leave thing, so I had, still was in my office. It was all very complicated. But anyway, he came to see me 20 minutes late. He sat down. He said, I'm really sorry I'm late. He said, I'm really sorry, but I've got to go. I've only got five minutes. So I remember sitting there thinking, you know, once all Rome trembled at my feet. And now <laughs> he's only going to save me five minutes. He says, I've got, a, I've got a small task for you to do. He said, and, and when you've done it, let me know and I'll, I'll try and come back again. Try and come back again. So I said, yes, yes, what is it? And he said, get your Rolodex out, your, your name and address file or all your contacts and rank them A, B, C. A is somewhere where you can pick up the phone and say, oh, hello. And the person will say, oh, hello, Ken. B is when you pick up the phone and say, hello, it's Ken here. And they say, oh, yes, Ken, how are you? And C is when you pick up the phone and say, hello, you might not remember me. I'm Ken Alyssa. I met you at a conference in California. So A, B, C. So I thought, right, well, I'll show you. <laughs> I must have hundreds of contacts. So and he said, right, I, I've got to go. And he went. So I thought, right, I'm really showing you. So I, get, I got out my equivalent of the Rolodex and I went through. And it's slightly apocryphal now, but if I had a 1,000 contacts, about five A's, and then about 30 B's, and all the rest were C's. And I learned a fundamental lesson that actually relationships require investments as opposed to they're just transactions that go through. Mm. I think now if you were to get out my Rolodex, he's probably got 5,000 contacts and most of them are A's or B's and there are very few mm. C's. But it was a really, very telling moment. Anyway, I digress. So I got a job offer to go and work for the software company, do exactly the same job that I'd done for Wang, except I'd now be flying to Atlanta once a month instead of Boston for the management meetings. But the rest was the same. I thought, ah, oh, fantastic. Phew. 
confidence restored, self-esteem restored. No one need ever know. I should be able to say, well, I was working for Wang, but they got into difficulty, you know, and uh, I, I've moved on to something else. And I'm so senior vice president of Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, which is no different, same car. I mean, it's, yeah. And, I, and, the, and it would heal over trauma. And I got the job offer from the company in front of me. And I remember, I will never forget this moment. I'm sitting there with my fountain pen out about to sign the contract. So I'm going to go and work for company B. I look out the window and the imp that I mentioned earlier uh, popped onto my shoulder and said, so <laughs> you're going to spend the rest of your life working for great companies that someone else has created. Hmm? And it folded its arms and stared at me. And I looked at this bloody thing on my shoulder and I looked out the window and I looked at the thing and I put the pen back down and I rang the chap I was going to work for and said, I'm really sorry, but I've changed my mind. I'm not going to come work for you. And he was foul. He was really unpleasant. So I was saved from a fate worse than death, really, because I had to stay there for three or four years to demonstrate that I wasn't somebody that flits from job to job. So the imp doesn't pop out very often, perhaps five or six times in my life, but gosh, it saved me in so many different ways. And so I started my own business, and that's the rest is, of course, history. Yes. And um, so you, you started Interregnum, which I think was 10 years, um, a kind of merchant bank, really. Um, uh, tech-based, was it tech-based? Yes, it was, tech, it was a tech-based merchant bank. We floated on, on uh, the AIM exchange on the day that NASDAQ hit its peak. So I have to say life off thereafter was downhill, but it was a very exciting up and downhill that, that we did it. And then I left there in 2006 and started a private version of the same thing, which is what I do now called Restoration Partners. But essentially what I do is I work with entrepreneurs. I mentioned Dr. Wang as an entrepreneur. I work with entrepreneurs who are, as I call them, exclusively all of my clients are mad but mad as in mission addicted disruptor not as insane although if you're outside it looks the same but they are all focused on making the world a better place mm. by doing something spectacular whatever it is they've either invented or intending to invent and it's so exhilarating and you know doctor, working with dr wang it was with him is now to overstate the proximity of our relationship but working closely with dr wang to dr wang it was just so in, it was just so exciting and he invented some amazing local area networks as one of his inventions. I mean, this bloke was just an absolute genius. His challenge was in America getting something he'd invented to be a big market success. And that's, that is the hardest part. That is the hardest part in innovation. Is it, it's good ideas are cheap. The hardest thing to do is to turn a good idea into an industry. And I saw him do that. Obviously, we were processing some other things. And what I now do is I try and find people who are mini-me, Dr. Wang's or equivalents and help them do well. Incredible. Um, and alongside all of this, there was um, what you talked about earlier, kindness and um, philanthropy. And uh, so you did, uh, you've been, I think, are you now um, president of Thames Reach? Yes, yes, I, I'm a lot of things, but that is one of them, yes. Yes, um, and you were, so that is a, a charity that works with homeless people, and you mm. were awarded an OBE in 2010 for your work with homeless people uh, and in a knighthood in 2018 for services to business and philanthropy. Which of those honours meant more to you? Cool. That's, that's a very good question. Actually, that's a very good question because I think you've just pierced into the, into the Ken world now. It's not really the way I think. So I, I, I'm going I'm to stumble around answering that question. Um, obviously, the first one was unbelievably exciting. And my yeah. mum was still alive and my mother-in-law was still alive. And, and Julia and I enjoyed taking them to Buckingham Palace. So, that, so that, was, that was wonderful. And we just had our first grandson had just been born. So the lunch that we had to celebrate the OBE is one of those great memorable times. Um, so, so that was wonderful. Um, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not ducking the question. I, try, I, don't, think I, I don't think I can answer it. I, uncharacteristically, I don't think I can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Annalisa lost to words. <laughs> shock horror. <laughs> oh, that's right. Shock horror. Ken struck dumb for a brief moment. A better answer to your question, if I may, <laughs> but it wasn't your question is some years ago now, Judah and I, my wife and I, uh, gave a large amount of money to my college, which had said to me, go drink deep of the opportunities and so on, mm. to endow the library. So there is a library named after us at, at Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge. 
that actually was the biggest thing I will probably ever do in my non-family life. And so, so actually, they're both wonderful, those two honours, and you know they, they line up with other things that I've received over time. But the library is just spectacular. And the reason the library is spectacular is, A, when I was at Fitzwilliam, we didn't really have a library. We had a room with books in it. And so you went there, you borrowed a book, and you took it back to a room where another million more interesting things called to you. And now there's a library that people from other colleges travel to to study in because it's so good. But I meet young people who say, oh, I've recently graduated from Fitzwilliam, and I'd just like to thank you for the library. And every time oh. they do that, I get, a, I get a buzz that I could never get from having got, a, having got an OB or, or a knighthood, which is not in any way to do, dismiss the importance of both of those things. I'm so proud for that. And, and if only my mother had been alive when I got the knighthood, it would have been a wonderful circularity to mm. that, uh, that, that um, Miss Saigon story I told at the beginning. Yes. But... but Hmm. Well, that's a very good question, Christina. I, I'm I'm struck dumb again. But I presume she was alive when you were made uh, Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, wasn't she? No, sadly not. No, the, oh. the, 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 but she was pretty pleased with the OBE. <laughs> so, yeah. so it was, it was all right. I gave the Buckingham Palace, and she and I remember I became I was one of the founders of the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority. Mm. So these expenses. And my mother was completely compostmentous, but couldn't understand what that was all about. <laughs> so so I, I'm not sure she would have cared. I mean, I think she felt she'd achieved all she needed to achieve and was just happy to coast the remaining decade. Well, I, I imagine she was, uh, I mean, given that you already had about, you know, you, well, you were the first, um, you had, was it Reuter first? And then Tom, then it became Thomson Reuter that you were non-exec director of, and you were the first non-white non-exec director of, Reuters, is that right? Yes, that's right. For, um, to be technically correct, but the first British-born non-white right, right, Fortune right. 100 company. Yes, right. Well, that's. I mean, and and you were a top of a black power list in some years ago. I, I think she had plenty of reasons to feel pretty proud of you. So, but tell me about being Lord Lieutenant. I mean, Henry VIII started this, so that's quite something. And you are essentially uh, the monarch's representative in Greater London, which uh, is quite... May I correct you again? Yes. I am the monarch's representative in Greater London. Yes, yes, no, sorry, you are, and uh, yeah, yeah, you are. I mean, um, I can't begin to imagine what that feels like. Um, When you heard, what did you feel when you heard about it? Well, when I got the letter asking me that I would be interested, I assumed it was a spoof. And in fact, not only did I assume it was a spoof, I know who, or I thought I knew, from whom a spoof would have come, because there's somebody I played a monumentally successful spoof on in about 1972 or three. And I thought, well, you know, I I think I would have probably waited 40 years to get my own back. So I was pretty sure it was a spoof. And then I discovered uh, through some sleuthing that it was genuine. So so the honest answer is my first reaction was, (laughs) I'm not going to fall for this one. (laughs) And how long did it take you to establish that it wasn't a spoof? Well, I managed to find someone who'd been the clerk to the Privy Council uh, previously, and I asked him if he wouldn't mind just casting his eye over the letter to see how I give me some advice on how to respond. And that gave him a nice big wide open opportunity to say, I don't think this is genuine. He did say, it's not the way I would have written it. <laughs> and I knew it was genuine. So it was great. So, uh, and thereafter, I then was interviewed, et cetera, et cetera. And I, was, I know, because I asked the question after I got the role, why me? And the answer is my work in and commitment to social mobility mm. uh, which is something that the queen uh, who's then obviously the monarch uh, was very keen on and particularly the idea that in the counties the lord lieutenant would be someone who understood what it was like to be in the county rather mm. than someone who understood what it was like to be for example a senior army officer but had no particular connection with the county so the old vice regal model of lord lieutenant has is changing and if you look at the there are 98 of us but if you look at my general cohort, where generally people much more closely grounded, as it were, in our counties than would have been the case, say, 100 years ago. So how much time does it take up? Because you've got masses of other roles, haven't you? Yes, I do a lot of things. It's very hard to answer that. Uh, I'm frequently asked the question, so I find it very easy to answer the question, but it's not a very good answer. It's very hard to answer that with any usefulness. So the better answer, I think, is, because I don't know, uh, I don't know how one would count it, really, because, mm. for example, I've I've received the king five times so far since he uh, since accession in London, and I would have I would have received his mother perhaps twice in a year. So so it's I don't know, but what mm. I do know is the better answer to the question I would say is what's the last thing I think about 
before I go to sleep at night, and it's usually the lieutenancy. So it's, really? it's kind of the blanket over all the things that I do. It, it's so important. Uh, the king, his mother was the same, but the king is so committed to the gluing society, the gluing the community together. The, the queen, of course, is famous for looking for the good in people. Yeah finding ways of strengthening community, communities, duty and service. But the king is the same. And mm. so there are all these things that are happening. For example, I mean, you think of all the stuff he has to worry about, but he had time to go to an African fashion exhibition at the V&A with the Queen Consort because it's a big statement about the Commonwealth. It's a big statement about inclusion. It's a big statement about the museum. It's a big, it, I mean, it was one of those fantastically packaged activities that just say... These are the things that, in which we should all be interested and shine a light on them so everybody gets to know about them. And, and that's what the, the monarchy does, I think, rather well. And we saw that with the Queen's funeral, just how the, pop, the well, actually the world, wasn't it, but particularly the population, suddenly thought, you know, what really matters? It's like if I turn on the media and I listen to people being snarky with each other and I, every, for every idea there's a negative person saying something, well, actually it really matters all the things that she stood for. And that pilgrimage of a quarter of a million people Going to see a to, well to see the coffin lie, and pay respects, lying in state. All these people lining the road. I mean, it is it, it was the most interesting anthropological experience, really. Uh, I trivialise it somewhat by saying when we were watching the concert and that Paddington Bear sketch came on, and you know it's Paddington Bear and the Queen in a in a sketch about Paddington Bear and so on, and I burst into tears. Mm. I sat there in the raw box watching the Queen and Paddington Bear playing that thing out, this 90-X-year-old lady, and I couldn't stop crying. Even though I can't quite explain why it made me cry, but what it did, it got to something really here, and her, her death got to something really here. And the really here bit is why the nation and the values that, that, that we stand for are so important, and that the monarchy is the embodiment of those things, uh, big time, really, really big time. And I think we've all had that rather rather refreshed. So in that sense, you can tell it it's all pervasive in all that yeah. I do and, and think about. It. it it's so important. I was was and am very, very upset about the Queen. I mean, obviously we knew she was no spring chicken. I always knew I would be very, very upset. I feel like crying now, actually. I covered the funeral on the Jeremy Vines show because mm. they knew they knew how much I I cared about. I mean, I, I met her briefly, I think a couple of times, but uh, obviously didn't know her but it was about what she stood for and the person she was and her sense of duty that I think was so extraordinary and and you clearly have that sense of duty in in so many ways too Ken does do any of your roles I mean they all have a hefty responsibility being on a board and you've chaired many boards is a big responsibility obviously running your own bank is a big responsibility and representing the monarch is an enormous responsibility do you get nervous about any of your roles? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, yes. There is a short answer. Frequently. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow. laughs> oh, but this, so this week, for example, the president of South Africa is coming to the country on a state visit, and he will arrive at Horse Guards, and the king and the queen consort will be there to welcome him, and then the king and the queen consort will present all of the following people, the Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, the Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Head of the Defence Staff, all the way down to, not in, that's not a hierarchy point, but all the way along the, the stage to the Lord Mayor of the City of Westminster in which Horse Guards is. And I will have to be there to welcome the King and the Queen Consort when they arrive and then present the Prime Minister, etc, etc, etc. And yes, you know, I shall have to be dressed properly in my immaculate uniform with medals and, 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 and yes, it, it, it is a, a, a tad stressful <laughs> doing, mm. doing these things. For example, but I'm high bailiff at Westminster Abbey and when the coffin came into Westminster Abbey and we had to process, yes, that's pretty stressful. So yes, absolutely stressful in a, but not in a sort of bowel opening nervous thing. It's just, it's just really important and getting mm. it right is really important. Mm. And what, finally, what advice would you give to someone starting out now wondering how to use their career in a positive way for the world and so that they find creative satisfaction in it? Well, I, it's not about you. It's about what you can do for others. And the wonderful thing about that is if you do things for others, it, it 
it, um, it comes back amplified. So I, I get a thrill out of helping other people, but they clearly get a thrill out of helping me. Frank Ellis taught me to drive. Mr. Spencer told me, actually, don't ever be intimidated by language of people, etc. And they obviously got a thrill out of telling and doing those things. But, but they didn't do it for the thrill. They did it because it was the right thing to do. But there's some people get a thrill out of being horrible and doing mean things. And so that, you know, we should celebrate the fact that people, good people get a thrill out of helping other people. Mm. So, so I, because it amplifies, so I'm just thinking, are you, it's a good question. I'm just thinking about the man who used to be the receptionist at Thames Reach. I was chairman. I went to a board meeting. I'd been told this chap had been in hospital and had died. And there he was on the front desk. It was, it was, I got such a flood of joy to see this bloke there. So I said, Frank, Frank, it's so good to see you. You've been in hospital. I understood you've been really unwell. Actually, I, I feel worse than that. And he just looked at me, and he got such a thrill out of the fact that the chairman knew that he so – we, so we stood there just getting a thrill out of each – with a pet, I suppose. People get that same thing, but it's a human, and it's much more powerful than that. So, so I, I think two things I would say is unless you are an evil person – Try to find ways to help other people because it, it will give you a thrill. It will make you better. But actually the deep, deep message I, I try to give, particularly young people at the Alito Foundation, which I started some years ago to inject social capital into people from tough reality backgrounds like my own, I say, you know, when you're faced with a difficult decision, follow your heart, not your head, not the advice of lots of other people, just follow your heart. But everybody I know who has a regret in their lives should have gone to university, should have married that person, should have, should have, should have chose not to follow their heart, but they tried to work out all the rules in their head and made, a, made the wrong decision. So I think my, if, if you wanted a motto, uh, I have a motto, but if you wanted a motto for this programme, mm. it would be follow your heart, not your head. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Ken, an absolute de- delight to talk to you. You're very welcome. I hope that wasn't too long-winded. No, it was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories and I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter, also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website, theartofwork.co and do join me for another podcast next week.